we would consider at this time the Word of God in the Gospel according to Matthew 19 and verses 16 through 26, the parable of, or not the parable, but the meeting of Jesus with a certain rich young ruler. We want as well to consider this in the context of the other New Testament books that speak of this same meeting of Jesus and a rich young ruler, which can inform us of the whole truth here that's being presented by the one word of God. So we're going to read from the parallel passages, Mark 10, first of all, then Luke 18, and then finally land on Matthew 19, from which we'll take our main perspective. But Mark 10, verses 17 through 22, these are the verses here, the word of God that we would consider Mark 10, verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, Jesus, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Noted that he, he came running, and he knelt before Jesus. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I think we'll read verse 23 as well. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, and the disciples were astonished at his words. And we'll stop there. Now Luke 18, Luke 18, 18 through 23. Luke 18, 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. and You will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. And again, we go on. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Let's go to our text now, Matthew 19, 16 through 26. Matthew 19, 16 through 26. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. 
He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. As far as we read the word of God, beloved, we've heard three times read this same account of the meeting of Jesus and a rich young ruler. May God bless us thrice and in the heart continually with the echoes of the word and the power of the word that we might hear by faith and believe and be found in Christ. It is the case that the Reformation was an impossible thing. We're celebrating the Reformation this day, Reformation Sunday, and as we are wont to do, we reflect upon the work of God in the time of Luther and Calvin and beyond. And we can surely say this was an impossible thing, at least for men, because there was this set in its ways church, which was a state church, had power over princes and kings and over the peoples and society, the mores, the things that they valued, the things that they feared. Keeping them in ignorance was the Roman Catholic Church in ignorance of the word of God. And to top it off, the clergy everywhere were largely corrupt, though there were a few good men. It needed to be a work of God, this Reformation, and thanks be to God, God worked that work to recover for us Protestants, heirs of the Protestant Reformation, the truth of the salvation that is in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. So the Reformation we have Seen is this work of God, and a great thing to be praised is God for leading a church from the darkness into the light, and it wasn't a mere enlightenment of men that was soon to follow this. It wasn't a renaissance of men who discovered old documents and who were elated at the knowledge they could have of those things. This was an enlightenment of God. This was a renaissance, a new birth, as it were, for the church when she was set free from her ignorance and made aware all the more, and with the help of many things, but God working in all, to know and appreciate the Son of God, the great salvation, the grace of God that must be the case if anyone would be saved. The Reformation is an impossible thing, and we reflect upon that and in that light, but it was a thing that God did 
even though it's impossible for men. And it's kind of like all of life, isn't it? Life is impossible to live rightly and to enjoy. Church life is one of those impossible things. We're a church full of sinners. And eternal life, how can this be? If this is what we see and this is what we taste and this is the life we lead, how can there be a, another life beyond the park and outside of the walls of the church and, and outside of this, this carcass that is only a tent? How can it be? Well, there's something, beloved, that we're learning tonight that is for Reformational Christians, Christians who would live, church Christians, and those who have eternal life and seek it. It's this. The goodness and greatness and almighty power of God. This is revealed, in fact, at a little meeting that Jesus had with a rich young ruler who was thinking of himself more than he ought to. This is the occasion of Jesus revealing his wisdom and the impossibility of salvation apart from him, but this is the occasion as well of his revealing, and this for us as well, that with men, things like salvation are impossible, but with God, all things like salvation are possible. So tonight, we pray to those who would dream the impossible dream, who would preach the word of the impossible thing called the cross of Calvary and grace, and for those who would believe these things and go away full of hope and happiness in the great God who's good and is good and who's wise and who knows all things and does them all very well. So we want to consider Jesus and the rich young ruler. Put yourself there, will you? Jesus and you. A man highly favored, this rich young ruler. That's what we want to consider first of all. A man hugely disappointed, however, at Jesus' call to him, requirements of him, and who was, in fact, disappointing himself. He let people down. Then there was, and there are men who are led from the impossible to the possible, even the disciples who were astonished at these sayings of Jesus. And we, who now hear it declared, Jesus and the rich young ruler, May the Lord Jesus visit us tonight. Theirs was, or this was, a highly favored man that is presented in our text. It's called a rich young ruler. And if you put all of the uh, words together of Matthew and Mark and Luke, you, you find this is the case. He's a rich young ruler. And... Um, it's not all said maybe in Matthew, but he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. Let's start with the fact that he's a ruler. Probably he's a prince or magistrate of, of some, some worth and some respect that's due. Probably not a Roman, but a Jew, maybe a ruler of the synagogue. No Roman ruler, we're told, would dare to call Jesus, that Jew, a teacher and a good teacher, but this one does. He's a man who respects authorities in the Jewish community, himself being an authority, a ruler, perhaps in a local synagogue. Matthew 19, verse 22, 
We're told that he has great wealth. The young man heard the saying that Jesus said, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That's another way he was highly favored. Lots of resources. He was not a poor man, he was a rich man. So he's respected and he's rich. And apparently he comes from the line of the covenant and from his youth up he's been keeping the commandments of God. That's what he says, his was a covenant home. And in those days, not only the homes would instruct, but there would be some Jewish religious schools. He would receive the instruction gladly from both home and from the church of that day. And so he's this man who's highly favored. For some reason, however, he's seeing that this is not enough. He's not happy. There's something making him restless. So he runs to Jesus whose reputation had grown by now as a great teacher and even miracle worker. He runs to him, and he respects this one, and he kneels before him, willing, apparently, to be taught of him. He's someone who's not so proud and cocky that he doesn't think he has anything left to learn, but still there's something about this fellow that doesn't sit well. In fact, Jesus confronts the man right away and, in fact, confronts him. And this also is a way that this man will highly be favored here, even if the man is disappointed by what Jesus speaks. Right away, Jesus, uh, when the the man comes and says, good teacher to him, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He questions the man's calling Jesus good. Now, this is striking and has left people like Jehovah's false witnesses who deny the divinity of Jesus into saying that Jesus here admits that he's not God because Jesus says there's not one good but God. Why do you call me good? But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. Jesus is good. Jesus is God. We know that. But what Jesus is doing is directing the man's attention to someone besides the mere human that this man was thinking Jesus to be and to the God whom this man was serving. And he calls God good. See, this man here needed to know the standard, the real standard of the word of God and the law of God, which he thought he had kept from his youth up. He needed to be reminded that the God of salvation is the God who reveals in his law his holy standard, his own holiness in commandments. So, for example, when God says, have no other gods besides me, he's showing that there are no other gods besides him. And when he commands all the other things he commands in the commandments, he's teaching that he, he is the source of all good and he is without any evil. Jesus here would turn this fellow to true theology. That is so important for all of us in our witness, isn't it? Turn people to the truth of God. Jehovah's Witnesses may come to you and and others who emphasize the end of time. So many sects and cults have their fetishes and their hobby horses that they ride. Oh, the end of time. We know exactly what Daniel says. We know that the Russians are going to come from the north. We know where Armageddon's going to be. We know the number of the beasts. That's to do with computers and so on. Uh, 
If you're wise, you'll direct them to God. And if they're wise, they'll be directed to God. The God of the end, the God of the beginning, the God who knows the end from the beginning, you know what I mean, God, God. And that, in fact, was exactly the work of God at the time of the Reformation. The church, you see, was playing God. The reformers were led to the true God. The church was, it thought, acting on the behalf of God, making an accursed idolatry out of the Lord's Supper by the institution and practice of the Mass. The reformers were led to this sense of the divine and the word of God that led them to things much higher than this and to things truly eternal and divine and God-glorifying. So Jesus here directs this man's attention to what really is good, not speaking of himself as not good and not God, but pointing this fellow here in this age between the Testaments to what he knew and what he ought to know about God as revealed in his word and his commandments. And in this, he'd teach this fellow that he wasn't such a hot-shot religious punk as he thought himself to be. He was just a sinner like all of us. You see, this man was full of himself and of his obedience. And he asked the question, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he's speaking the language of merit there. If the Pharisee that we saw this morning was the first monk, this is the second monk, maybe, thinking that he can merit something with God and that Jesus will commend him for doing such a fine thing, uh, even from his youth up. So after he calls him good and says there's, or, and, and Jesus says there's none good but one that is God, Jesus tells the man, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And then the man says, well, which ones? And Jesus says, and lists off six commandments, including you shall love your neighbor as yourself, summarizing the whole second table of the law. Nothing of the first table here. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father, your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And then Jesus goes and tells him, If you will be perfect, if you will be a perfect reflection of the holiness of God, now you go and sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What is Jesus doing? Some people imagine that Jesus is pointing out how one ought to be saved by keeping the commandments. As if Jesus here is denying that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Jesus himself, they are saying, is the first pope. How sacrilegious can you be? Jesus here, inciting commandments, is saying this, if you will be perfect, if you will have eternal life, this is indeed what you must do if you're going to go the law way. But what Jesus is teaching here, as he teaches one further requirement that he has in mind for him, and also especially when he teaches, now you have to come and follow me, and Mark and Luke say, and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is teaching 
sin. That's what he's teaching. And the only way out, Jesus Christ. For Jesus knows that the big if will never happen. If you keep the commandments, if you honor your father and your mother perfectly, love your, your neighbor perfectly, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness and all of that. If you do that, then you're a perfect being to begin with, but you can't do that. You can't. You can't. Jesus knows that only if one is perfect, only if one is not a sinner, can one keep those commandments. So what he's doing is he's testing this person. This person agrees with the law. Yeah, I could do that. But then Jesus says, now here, here's what it comes down to. Here's something, and, he, and he's educating this, this man with personal instruction. It's a private, it's a meeting of Jesus and this man. He's going to tell him his sin, his real problem. You need to sell everything you have. And that's not in the commandments. That's not a commandment for everybody. But you, young man, you're trusting too much in your riches. You're coveting. And in fact, what he's doing here is, is pointing the man to the problem he has. He has a God in riches and a God in himself. He's guilty of breaking, therefore, all the commandments. He's having another God than God. And the neighbor is not someone he's so concerned about that he would give all that he has for the poor. He loves me, myself, and I, and all the riches, all the things that money can buy. Jesus is speaking of the fact that if you're under the law, if you're going to play the law game, you're doomed. You're doomed. It's a problem with the Pharisee and all the law lawyers. They thought they could be saved by keeping the law. Or adding to the law, making up laws that would get them in even better than the normal law keepers. Jesus is saying it's all wrong. No man can be saved by the keeping of the law. Galatians 3 teaches us. There's no salvation in the keeping of the law because the law convicts us of sin. And if you read Galatians, it's all about this. The law being for this temporary time of the Old Testament to show the people the need of the promise, which was never disannulled. The law was superimposed upon the promise to show the people just how precious the promise to Abraham was. And all the laws, all 613 of them, and the Ten Commandments to boot, they were there to show the people just how great their sins and misery by the law, the apostle says, is the knowledge of sin. And Jesus was being a great teacher here to bring that law as no one else had done that to that rich young ruler whom everyone thought, and it was written in the yearbook, his high school yearbook, most likely to succeed. Talk about deflating. Jesus saying... 
here's what you need to do, spoke right to the heart. You know, that's what God does to us today, too. Some of you sometimes come to me and say, Reverend, did you know what I was going through? Or they'll be critical, and they say, now, why did you bring that out? Why did you bring that out? How dare you? And me, all along, I'm not thinking uh, that I was doing anything like that. I was speaking the truth of the Bible here and making application as I can, but I don't know your hearts, but God does. And he brings to bear the word of God just for you, upon you. As we'll see in another point, this is God speaking to us here and meeting with us. And here, then, is how this man is highly favored and how this would be something highly favored to many a sinner if they would sit under the preaching of Jesus and of a faithful minister and hear about the law of God and how it applies. But Jesus himself, being all wise and, and knowing the heart of this man, he just knows just where to get at this man's idol, this man's problem, this man's self, selfishness, self-righteousness. And then he says positively, that's not enough. In fact, that's not even the main thing, except that it's interfering with the main thing. You, if you will have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. That's what he says. And Mark, at least, maybe Luke says, come and take up your cross and follow me. Come and believe. That's what he's saying. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come believing in me. I'm your riches. I'm your everything. I'm the Savior. That's what he's saying. And we know all of this in light of the rest of the New Testament. That is indeed what Jesus is saying here. True discipleship is believing in the good master who's the good God with us. And this selling all that he had was for this man the way he would show that he believes in Jesus, that his faith is not fake. He needed to do this because he was trusting in these riches. He was idolizing them and trusting really in himself and taking his accomplishments and his position in society too much with regard to his pride. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus says, it doesn't matter that you think you've kept all of these things. There's this one thing you lack. One thing is needful. Sell your possessions. Take up your cross. Follow me. Now, beloved, you think about all the ways that this man was favored with an education, with a position of ruler, uh, being a ruler, and with his wealth and all of these possessions. I dare say, I'm bold to say, this is the greatest favor that could ever have been shown to him. An hour with Jesus at the school of Jesus Christ. Listening to words 
from the Word of God. Listening to truth for once, the truth of God, the truth of man, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of faith alone and grace alone, the gospel for reformation of a soul. That's what he's hearing. How favored can you be? And you'd expect the man to react well. But he doesn't, does he? As we read, when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Wow. You know, there's many highly favored people in our world, in our country, in Grand Rapids. We're rich. I was talking today with a brother. We are the richest nation in all of history. Oh, there might have been little kingdoms here and there. The king had the billions. We've got the billions spread out among us. I might have 2350, you might have 2150, whatever, but we have far more than any country that ever existed in history. We are so rich. We are overflowing with riches. And yet, we're not that rich, are we? This man represents everyone in Adam, just like the Pharisee who is yet in Adam for all his religiosity, too. And we're very religious, too, aren't we? And some of us in position of authority and heads of household in the position of authority there. And we have these favors of the gospel here in this Western Hemisphere. And as heirs of the Reformation, we have the gospel and we're rich and saturated with all kinds of theology books and bookstores all over the place, from Baker to Erdman's to Zondervan's and Kriegel's and so on. I know, I've been there, spent all my fortune there. We have it all. So rich in knowledge. Bibles in our own translations, in our own languages, translated into our own languages. Covenant education, outwardly keeping the commandments kept from all sorts of sin. And yet, just like this man, we can react when the truth is put right to us. as if we're just not going to listen. It's just too much, too much. Now, Jesus doesn't tell everyone to sell everything they have. Some people take this as another call to monkery, being a mendicant, a beggar monk. That's not what he's saying here. But he is saying that the instruction that he gives is personalized to every single one, and this is the glory of the preaching. God is speaking personally to you, every single one of you, and I was going to name your names, but not to embarrass you, I won't. And he's speaking to me, 
who's speaking to you, and he's speaking to all of us and reminding us today of just what it is that we're lacking. And when he speaks, he's going to speak of a lot of things and a lot of areas we have to improve on. And basically, he's saying to us, you're a sinner. And teaching us the first principle of those who would live and die happily in Christ, you need to know, you need Christ, you need to know, you need mercy, you need to know that you're not the savior of yourself, you're not the righteous one you think you are. And so there's a word that comes to you today and it comes to me today. The question is, how will we react when that word says you're a sinner? Stop doing that. Follow me. Well, the man, he went away sorrowful. His God was his belly. He was a materialist. He was proud. Striking, there's no name. Some surmise it was Lazarus, whom Jesus loved. I'm not going to go there. Don't have any proof of that. But he's a no name. He doesn't have a name. That's striking. Nicodemus is named, and Lazarus is named, and Joseph of Arimathea, they're named as these rich rulers and so on. And if, if Lazarus is among them, but, but not this fellow. And again, one of the beauties of the scripture is what is not said in there, and we might like to be said, but what is not said so that we get the picture, this is us. He is us. Whether we be male or female, rich or poor, we're meeting with Jesus. That's the call here. That's the lesson here. Now, this man's reaction, which is basically to forsake Jesus, is amazing. Amazing, we would say, and, and how, how foolish. The fool was saying in his heart, there is no God here. He didn't want that God who was good, you see. He wanted the God who was down on his level, whose commandments he could, he could manage to keep. He wanted this way to salvation of following a Jesus. And maybe he was saying, who do you think you are, Jesus? I'm not going to follow you. I'm following God after all. Didn't have it at all, did he? Didn't have it right. You know, it's almost understandable that this man could not possibly have listened to what Jesus was saying and, and obeyed him and sold everything he had and gave to the poor and followed Jesus. Understandable because, you know, in those days, it was the, the, the word to the Jews that if you're gifted with wealth, status, and so on, that's a, that's a pledge of God's blessing. If you read Deuteronomy 28, in the first verses, after all, it speaks of blessed are those who obey the commandments of God and they're blessed with rain and sunshine and victory over enemies and in their houses and their fields. They're blessed and they're only cursed if they're disobeying the commandments. So the, the implication is if you're a rich man and if you're favored, then you're favored of men and you're a ruler and you're, you're elevated to a position of, of being a ruler in a synagogue, well, then it must be that God is favoring you. So Jesus here, he's going against the whole flow. 
He's instituting another dispensation. He's, he's saying here, hold it a second here. Here's the truth of all of this. The things that you received as a Jew of the Old Testament were indeed part of God's plan, but part of God's plan for babies, for those who were immature, who needed laws, and who needed physical blessings, as it were, to show to them the way to heaven and also the way of blessing and what it looks like to be blessed. But now Jesus is saying, here's the way it is. Here's the dawn of a new thing, a new covenant he would establish in his blood where blessings from heaven will come and every spiritual blessing will flow like water down the mount into your mouth and fill you with fullness and you will be planted by the riverside of grace and there will be something called a kingdom of heaven that's established that knows no boundaries for blessing even if you're bearing a cross. Spiritual blessedness he would be teaching this man and us. Well, this man went away, and he's representative of the fact that many go away from this. Many go away. The ruler, in fact, shows he's not really a ruler but a slave. Slave to stuff, slave to self, slave to wealth, as many in America are, in the rich countries. Riches, indeed, rich culture, we think. And we have our own standard of living. And the problem is, it's the standard of the good man not of the good God. What an amazing lesson Jesus is teaching here. In God, God is good. That he's the way to God. And you need to follow that way and believe in that way or you're a sinner. For all of your religiosity, you're a sinner. So Jesus draws the conclusion from this and begins this further instruction about this man going away from Jesus with the word assuredly or amen. He wants to emphasize it. Here's something that's so true. I verify it with an amen. I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the first thing he's saying. Speaking of the difficulties of someone leaving an idolatrous lifestyle, it's impossible as for the Pope to renounce his popedom and for God to work a miracle, the Reformation. There is this just about impossibility of a rich man entering the kingdom compared to a camel entering uh, the eye of a needle or going through the eye of a needle. What does that mean? It's simply a figure, beloved, to speak of something that's impossible. A camel's big, children. It's a big hump or two. 
Huge thing. Eye of a needle, very, very small. Now, some people think this eye of the needle is a reference to a little door that would be left open in a gate so that people who were um, there late at the, the gate might go through the little door even though the gate would not be opened. But there's nothing to verify this, that that is the reference here. Point is, the eye of a needle is a reference to something very small compared to something very big, and Jesus is speaking of the precariousness of wealth and of a wealthy man. It's not the wealth itself, but it's the position that it puts one in. The position we are in America of having everything, all the comforts of home and of two homes and of this place and three cars and all of this, And Jesus on the other side. It's a lesson, he says, in fact, in the things that are impossible. The disciples heard it. They're greatly astonished. They're saying, who then could be saved? They, they take this to heart. Not just rich men, but who, who at all can be saved? Who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom? Got lots of riches. You got lots of religion. You're a ruler. You can't enter the kingdom. How am I going to enter the kingdom? I don't even pretend to keep one of the commandments of God. And I don't have much money. And I can't give much money to the church. And I, I don't have a lot of talents, I think. And not many people like me. Who then can be saved? I'm just a poor fisherman. I'm just a ditch digger. I'm just this person starting out in life, and I don't know what I'm doing. So the disciples who hear it and who are just among the low life of the world, they're greatly astonished. They're disturbed. Who then could be saved? And then Jesus says this. He looks at them. He looks at them. And he says... With men, this is impossible. Things like salvation. But with God, all things are possible. Let's speak to that in our final point. Again, pointing to God is Jesus. And not uh, philosophically, first of all, I want to say, he's not just extolling the power of God and the ability to do the impossible. In fact, that would not be possible, that God would be able to do the impossible, meaning this. There's what I want to qualify this. God, for example, who's good, can't do evil. That's not possible, is it? God, who's ordained that there be two mountains with a valley in between, and that's what defines a mountain, can't make two mountains without a valley in between. He can't make a circle square and a square circle, for then it wouldn't be a square, it wouldn't be a circle. These are the things that God cannot do, will not do, and that's the point. Whatever God wills to do, he can do. And what Jesus is speaking here, taking us from the realm of philosophy, we've just been there for about 30 seconds enough, isn't it? He's speaking with regard to salvation. Men can't do it, 
but God can and God will. What Jesus is doing here is opening up the doors so that the light shines from things like the cross and things like the empty tomb and what God does and the extent that he goes to make possible and real the salvation of sinners. Holding out hope to all the lawbreakers and all the not good people even before the perfectly good God. Hope of having a right standing with God. Hope of God's approval. It's possible, he says. All things are possible. The worst of sinners can be saved because it's not about the worst of sinners becoming better people, but it's about the grace of God to the worst of sinners. And so the whole of the Bible, Old Testament as well as New Testament, speaks of the fact that it's not God's way. It simply is not God's way to save by the works of the law. Romans 3.20, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Galatians 2 speaks of grace by which alone we're saved. Ephesians 2, the same thing. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 sums it all and speaks of the, the wonderful plan even of God from the beginning and from eternity. And I quote first, 2 Timothy 1 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and of me as prisoner, but share with me the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. But here, here's why it's possible. Salvation is possible according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Do you know why? All things like the salvation of God's own is possible and real and effectual because of God and his plan and his mercy and his grace and his son. This was discovered at the time of the Reformation. Do you know this, beloved? Have you discovered this? Or is it all covered up, what you thought you once knew, in all the dirt of the world, in all your backslidings, your sins, your selfishness, your riches? With God, all things are possible, and it's all, beloved, not simply because of the power of God, but because of the love of God.
And I believe, beloved, that this man, this rich young ruler, who went away sorrowful at this time, was actually saved. We don't know when, but he was actually saved, I believe, because we read in the gospel according to Mark, he was loved. And Jesus, looking at this man who had just said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure up in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here's the key. Jesus loved him. This man, he went away. He went away from Jesus. He went away from the calling. He refused to listen to the calling. But Jesus didn't go away. Love never goes away. Not if it's love of God. Having loved his own, John says, he loves them to the end. Having ordained for them to be chosen in love in Jesus Christ, he loves them to the end. This man went away. But God never goes away from those who love him and from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8, nothing shall separate us if you're loved of God through this Savior. In fact, Jesus will die for this man and he will die for the likes of you and me in love. And then he rises from the dead and he prays and he ever lives to make intercession for us because he loves us. This is a story here, a meeting here, of the great possibilities of love and of the fact that love is always first. Here's love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son for us. First John. This, is, this illustrates it perfectly. Jesus is drawing a lesson here of just how it is all the time. He comes to us, we go away from him. He comes to us, he gives us faith, and we're glad for him for a little while, but then we find that the good we do, we do not, and the evil that we would not, that we do. There's a strait we have betwixt two, heaven or hell, and sometimes in our hellishness we'd rather choose hell because there is no God except in his wrath. We foolishly imagine he's not there in his wrath, but we like hellish things. That's what sinners prefer. And the cost of discipleship is too much. Believe in grace. Believe in the grace of the Reformation. Believe in that we're saved by grace alone. Only we say to the buddies going to the bar with us, we like cheap grace. It doesn't cost so much. Maybe let it cost something to Jesus, but believing in grace, and it doesn't cost any, us anything, does it? And so what we do is adorn with rags the gospel of salvation and of grace by our own filthy righteousnesses and hypocrisies and sordid activities and whiling away the time and wasting our time on games that people play who don't even confess Jesus Christ. How shameful of us. And beloved, Jesus is meeting with us tonight. And it's with us, and it's with each of us who come to him and maybe boast, and maybe we're on our knees, 
and respecting the authority of Jesus to a point. But he's going to turn us around and upside down, isn't he? When he comes and says, ah, but you're just a sinner and I'm the only Savior. So, beloved, with God all things are possible. They were at the Reformation. They were long ago and long before that made possible and made a reality and not just up to chance because of the incarnation of the Son of God and the cross of Calvary and the death and resurrection of Messiah. Made possible, oh yes, maybe an understatement, made real salvation when it comes to us and turns us and whirls us around in the tornado of the gospel that has a way of shaking everything up. gives us to land in the firm foundation of truth. You love that word of the good God, then, beloved, never, never, never give up. God is the God of grace and mercy. Theme of the Reformation, because it's the word of God. Now, that's the word of God, Here I stand. Do you? Amen. We pray, Father, you would bless us with the truth of the wonderful salvation that you've given in Jesus. Give us rich men, young men, rulers, poor men, old men, servants, Taste and see the goodness of God once again preached to us from heaven. May we come away shaking our heads in amazement of the wonderful salvation of God who calls the light out of the darkness and sinners out of hell to be with him. Lord, help us to come away with believing astonishment that leads not merely to shaking our heads, but to worship anew in a life consecrated in the light of the gospel we've heard to the service of the living God. We love you, Father. Oh, and thanks for loving us and keeping us in that love. Though we so often go astray, you are God. And though we be faithless, you are faithful. Lord of this gospel, we are not ashamed at all, but we glory in it. And here, Lord, we stand. Forward we will go in your service and praise together all the way to heaven. Amen.